The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. It is Friday. We're starting the weekend off early with the spotlight on arts and entertainment, as we do each and every Friday. And uh, joining me this hour... Uh, my guest is a, a scholar of cinema and the author of a new book that's coming out this summer called Vitagraph about America's first great motion picture studio. His name is Andrew Arish. He joins me by phone. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. I have to admit, and, and I'm an old film fan. Um, not so much silent films, but some. And sure. and um, I'm not familiar with the name Vitagraph or the name of the uh, the founders of the company. Would I be familiar with movies they did? You know, probably not. Um, and you're in great company because no one else has really ever heard of them either. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, you know, if they had been well-known, as well-known as they should be, I wouldn't have had to have written my book. Um, <laughs> well, we can't have that, Andrew. That. We can't have that. <laughs> uh, no, no, I was also, thinking because I recently saw a, a silent film that I believe was made by a company in Chicago that featured the um, uh, William Gillette as Sherlock Holmes, who had appeared yeah. as Sherlock Holmes on stage many, many times. Yeah. But I think that was the only time he was captured on film. And it occurred to me when I started reading about your upcoming book that 
this might have been the kind of thing that I might discover one of Vitagraph's films the same way. Sure. There are so many great films that this company made. And I think I wrote the book for two reasons. Basically to set the historical record straight, but just as importantly to turn on the reader onto some great, great movies that we just haven't been aware of before. And a lot of them are available online now. There are restorations going on constantly all over the world. People in the archives are starting to recognize that there are some really wonderful older films that we haven't paid attention to in a long time that need uh, to get restored to the best possible picture quality um, and to get out there for audiences to enjoy for themselves. Now, uh, the, the subtitle of your book, Andrew, is it's Vitagraph, and then underneath it says, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio. What were the qualifications to be the first great motion picture studio? Well, among other things, they were the first company to build a studio, a movie studio, the way that we think of uh, movie studios to be in the United States. Uh, when they first went into business, um, there was not even a name for motion pictures. That hadn't been invented yet. It was this wild thing that was mesmerizing people. Um, they had to invent everything from scratch, they and the other pioneers. There were five companies originally in the U.S. that started in the 1890s that continued into the 20th century. What was the they thing became, that, that sparked that interest, that, that five companies would uh, do their version of the White Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, you know, and be the first ones to put pictures up on a screen? You know, the very first thing actually starts with uh, a couple of guys that took still photography and thought, boy, what if we could make still images that moved, that mimic movement in real life? Uh, one is named Edward Mybridge, who you may have heard of, and there was a fellow in Germany who was doing it as well. And they took still photographs and put them on a wheel and made a device where these pictures were on glass slides and you'd spin the wheel and a light would project these slides onto a screen but the wheels could only be so big and these moving images were about three seconds long that was enough for people like thomas edison to say wow imagine if we could do something longer with a different kind of delivery device um to show longer movement uh, because it was just blowing people away. Um, Edison had the money, the resources, the name to really develop this thing. But he didn't do it himself. He actually instructed his chief engineers, come up with something. Here's the idea. <laughs> um, and Edison never got out much, as far as I can tell. Uh, I don't think he ever went to the theater. So he said, in inventing this device, I don't see this as something that's going to have um, legs. It, it's a novelty, and people are going to grow tired of it quickly. 
So put this delivery device in individual viewing cabinets, and people will pay a penny or a nickel. They'll see the thing. They'll be blown away, and we'll make some money for a year or two, and that'll be the end of it. Well, the two guys that started Vitagraph were uh, Jay Stuart Blackton and Albert E. Smith, and they were young immigrants, both from England, who wanted to become vaudeville entertainers. And they had success on a, a couple of minor vaudeville circuits, one called the Chautauqua, that played largely to Christian audiences, and one called the Lyceum, that played largely to secular audiences. And, and the thing that those two audiences had in common were that they were kind of what was called at the time uplift societies. So you would go to learn about literature and the arts and music and science and the latest discoveries. And these guys developed uh, acts where Blackton was a lightning sketch artist and a Smith was a magician. And they put together self-contained uh, evenings entertainment with a buddy of theirs so that they wouldn't have to be individual performers on a vaudeville bill. They would make more money that way. And by designing an act that appealed to both uh, a faith-based audience and a secular audience, they were covering all the bases. And they used that as their idea moving forward as filmmakers. They, Blackton and Smith, walked into an arcade in lower Manhattan in 1895 and peered into one of these Edison kinetoscopes and instantly said, I got to do this. We have to, we have to make these things. And their initial idea was to supplement their vaudeville act. And like everyone else that peered into the cabinet, Blackton and Smith said, we have to figure out a way to project these images. It's wasted looking into a cabinet like this. Was that, was that, um, those, uh, kinescopes or, or whatever the word was you used, is, was that the, the sort of the forerunner of what we think of when we think of Nickelodeon? Well, a Nickelodeon was the first purpose-built theater for motion pictures. Um, and those really started uh, in 1905. Before that, you know, these guys started making uh, Vitagraph and the other competitors of Edison started making movies in 1896, 1897. And you immediately say, okay, how do I get these to people? How do we show them? What are the entertainment venues? The first thing that springs to mind is vaudeville theaters. So they would try to convince individual vaudeville empresarios to include a program of films on their bills. And there would traditionally be about eight acts on a vaudeville bill. And very often the movie segment would close the bill of a vaudeville show. But how do we go beyond that? And you'll, Tom, you'll love this. One of the things, they, the Blackton and Smith brought in a third partner named William Rock. And one of the things that Rock did was make a deal with a traveling medicine show. And this company was based out of Connecticut, the Kickapoo Medicine Company. And they had multiple units traveling the country that would put on little entertainment at small towns and crossroads in rural places. 
and they would gather audiences, and people would do little performances, and then they would sell their snake oil to people. They're their tonics, their medicines for carols. Oh, that's funny. And Rock convinced the Kickapoo Medicine Company to start showing movies. So the first way that a lot of Americans in small towns and rural areas saw movies were in these traveling medicine shows where they would hook up a projector to a car battery and project movies. You, you know, you had to think uh, outside and, the and box. What, and what there venues? Was no box and, yeah, and what venues, Andrew? Did, did most cities, uh, even small towns, have some kind of a an opera house uh, where yeah, live, live music and theater was being performed? Absolutely. And there were different kind of um, auditoriums for that, from vaudeville houses to um, more auditorium-based um, places. There was also something called black tent shows at carnivals and at amusement piers, um, along Lake Michigan, you would have seen black tent shows in the summertime. And these were purposely built tents and black tents to shut out all light that movies would be projected inside. Um, all kinds of interesting venues. And Vitagraph was at the forefront of developing so many of these. And William Rock, who became uh, was brought into the company in 1898, early 1899, had opened the first purpose-built, uh, what we would call Nickelodeon, in New Orleans in 1896. And the guy made a fortune. And he became legendary because he went from being, he was the first Nickelodeon operator to go from operating a little nickel theater to becoming president of the biggest film company in America and later on the biggest film company in the world. Uh, and these were shrewd men. Rock charged five cents for people to see his shows in New Orleans, and he charged 50 cents if you wanted to see the operation of the projector and understand how it worked. And the guy cleaned up. Uh, <laughs> the the first behind-the-scenes you know. look. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, Smith and Blackton were entertainers, but more than entertainers, they had to create everything from scratch. So what does that mean? It means acquiring some kind of a projector and camera and then figuring out how they work and trying to build a better mousetrap. And Albert Smith was largely in charge of those things. And he built better projectors, um, better cameras. They hired engineers to make improvements on those. They also had to write their films. In the beginning, they had no actors. They had to act in their films. They had to serve as the cinematographers. Um, in the very beginning, you know, uh, Smith might be standing behind the camera, Blackens in front of the camera, and they're directing each other as they're making the films, as these things are happening. They start to add... Hey, Andrew, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I have to go to a break here. Can you stick around? Because I want to talk about this some more. Absolutely, Tom. My guest is Andrew Arish. He is a uh, cinema scholar and the author of an upcoming book called Vitagraph about America's first great motion picture studio. And we'll have more with Andrew right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of a new book that's coming out this summer called Vitagraph, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio. My guest is uh, cinema scholar Andrew Arish. Andrew, uh, thanks for sticking around. Welcome back, and uh, sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, my pleasure. I, I am all about supporting sponsors of great programs like yours, so absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, and let's get back to our talk about um, Vitagraph, because it's, it's, um, you're saying it's America's first great motion picture studio, and we're talking about, uh, in the last segment, some of the early innovations getting still pictures to become moving pictures and to find venues to put, you know, to, to put those on in. Um, but they were the first ones to go to um, what we now would call two reels. Yes, um, among other things. They, they're great, um, I think one of the great hallmarks of what they were doing was uh, Blackton and Smith were both born in 1875. So they were young men in their early 20s when they got started. And they were immigrants, and they really caught the zeitgeist of what was going on at the beginning of the 20th century uh, in America. They, you know, came from poor backgrounds. They wanted, they believed in the American dream and worked their butts off to try to achieve it. And their films had an energy and a polish that other films didn't, so that by 1905, they decided we need to really uh, anchor this and develop this into a business along the lines of other businesses, like what you know Henry Ford was starting to do in the automotive industry. So they bought property in Brooklyn, New York. They built a proper studio, and they started to put actors and directors and cameramen uh, and others under contract and started to release movies um, on a regular basis uh, every week. And then it became twice a week and three times a week and six times a week. And they were releasing, uh, after a few years, more than seven movies a week, um, including a long feature and otherwise a lot of short films. Um, they were making films that people liked more than the other companies. And because they were in that position, they were able to make deals with some of the major vaudeville uh, theaters and chains. And because they were both from England originally, they understood that there was a market for movies outside the United States. So Albert Smith began annual trips, making annual trips to Europe in 1903. And in 19, at the very beginning of 1907, they opened up distribution offices in London and Paris um, to distribute their films, not only to the British Empire, not only to the continent of Europe, but to virtually every place around the world. Well, so at they, that time, distribution would have been brand new. What did that really mean? Oh, absolutely. What, how, were they, absolutely. how were they moving their, their films from place to place? And, and who were they sending it to, and how were they being used? Well, it, their 
really big push into product into production um, started to open the eyes of people that were attending movies or exhibiting movies. And and in 1905, um, it mushroomed overnight. This idea of creating theaters that only showed movies. And it, it took off all over the world. And it, it started in Pittsburgh, by and large, a guy named Harry Davis. And he started to open up other theaters like that around the country. And people soon heard about the amazing success that this guy was having. And, you know, success um, breeds imitation. Uh, so everyone started making movies in the Vitagraph style. Everyone started making, uh, constructing Nickelodeons. And this is happening all over the world. Uh, Edison had marketed those kinetoscopes, uh, viewing cabinets, um, all over the place because he had uh, the name. He was known all over the world for his other inventions. He had contacts so that kinetoscope viewing cabinets were going everywhere. Vitagraph built on that um, and when they would learn of theaters opening up to movies in places around the world, they were the first Americans there. Um, the French, the French Pathé Company, was also equally huge in opening up markets everywhere. And they would go into countries where there weren't places and convince people, you're going to make a lot of money if you open up a theater and show our movies. And within a very few short years, Vitagraph movies were being shown in places you can't imagine. There are letters I've read from India, Africa, um, Siberia, China, uh, South America. Well, those early movies that they did were, were ideal to opening up foreign markets because they were silent films. So there right. was there was no um, translation no needed. Right. All you needed to do was translate the intertitles, the printed words between scenes, and there was a, a kind of a, a ideal that the best movies had the fewest intertitles. If you could tell a story purely through the visuals, um, that was what you went for. Um, Vitagraph, like everyone else, made some slip-ups along the way. Uh, Jay Stewart Blackton, one of the partners, uh, aspired to do Shakespeare on film. So the company <laughs> made something like 12 Shakespeare movies within a two- or three-year period. Now, you can't... And, and at this point, movies were basically one reel long, which were 12 minutes, about 12 to 15 minutes. They're pushing the envelope saying, we need two reels to tell some stories more properly and they were getting pushback from the Nickelodeon operators saying audiences won't sit through a two reel movie a half hour to show a movie are you out of your mind and they kept the photograph kept pushing but even a half hour long silent Shakespeare doesn't really work they're pretty bad Stay away from those. There's one really good one that they made. Well, yeah, Shakespeare's all about the words, Andrew. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if, if, you, if you weren't intimately familiar with Shakespeare, they're the most baffling things you'll ever see in your life. <laughs> now, on the other hand, Blackton 
did something that no one else did that he doesn't receive credit for in the history books because all this stuff uh, has largely been ignored. Blackton created movie animation because he had been a uh, lightning sketch artist in vaudeville. He wanted to apply that idea to movies to try to make drawings move. And he figured out how to do it. And his, his early attempts are very subtle around 1900. And in 1906, he made a movie called Humorous Phases of Funny Faces, which is clearly the first animated film ever made. Um, he only made a few more after that, because in addition to, you know, how time-consuming making a hand-drawn cartoon can be, well, these guys are the head of a studio that, you know, by 1909, they're making over a million dollars a year. And they're producing movies every day of the week, and they're supervising enormous staffs. They had 200 people under contract in 1908. By 1915, that had grown to 1,200 people under contract. And they opened up multiple studios. Um, besides Brooklyn, they opened up a studio in Hollywood, uh, actually in Santa Monica, California, in 1911. They realized that it was two blocks from the ocean. If you've ever been to Santa Monica, there is often a, a heavy fog that rolls in. And if you're shooting movies outdoors, it's the worst place in L.A. to be shooting movies. <laughs> so, you know, you learn by your mistakes. They moved into Hollywood, um, and their Hollywood studio is actually still in operation. Someone else obviously owns it now, but it became the um, hub of the ABC television network. When ABC started in 1948, they bought what had formerly been the Vitagraph Studios, and it's still being used for television production and some movie production to this day. Um, now, you said something. Television. You said something earlier, Andrew. I want to go back and pick up on a couple things. One is, sure. you said that uh, that the public really liked the Vitagraph movies better than the movies that were being made by other companies. And yeah. that raises a couple of questions. Uh, um, the the greatness of this motion picture studio, it sounds to me from what you've been saying, was both form and substance. Exactly. The, the creative side was just as important as the innovations they were making in the technology to, to produce these things. Were the Absolutely. other companies copying them, and where were their, their movies shown? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, if I may, to preface that, Vitagraph started the star system. They put people under contract that were became very, very popular. And they weren't initially giving them credit by name. So that the first woman they placed under contract was named Florence Turner. She went under contract in 1907. And people only knew her for the first um, three years, two and a half years, as the Vitagraph girl. And they realized um, Vitagraph was enough of a draw by name only. Oh, a new Vitagraph film is playing this Tuesday at the Nickelodeon. We've got to go. It's a Vitagraph. The company brand was the draw that brought in audiences. And people started to write in and say, uh, "Tell we, we want to learn more about the Vitagraph girl. She's our favorite. We like her movies best. 
and her counterpart was a man named Maurice Costello, and he was known as Dimples. He had this dimple on his cheek <laughs> that uh, women just absolutely fell in love, and he was a rugged fellow, too. And they were paired up together. They were the first great screen couple, and people all over the world. Vitagraph started the first uh, movie fan magazine, and in the first contest to decide who were the most popular people in the movies, uh, Florence Turner and Maurice Costello were just blowing out everyone else from all the other. There, there was no comparison in terms of the votes that they were getting. Um, they were just that popular. They also, uh, shortly after Costello and Turner joined the company, um, a fellow showed up one day who had had many years of experience on the stage and thought, you know, I'm getting older. I, I miss my wife and kids when I'm on the road. He lived in Brooklyn. Uh, they gave him a try. He's a funny-looking man. His name was John Bunny. And John Bunny literally overnight became a movie star, and he was the first great comedian of American movies. He was so popular. He had no idea of how popular he was outside of New York until he prevailed on Vitagraph. I, my dream has always been to play Pickwick in the Pickwick papers. Dickens is my favorite. It's my favorite character. And he looked like the drawings of Pickwick in the original editions. Mm. Bunny was such a big star that they said, sure, why not? Um, and let's shoot it in England on the locations that Dickens wrote about. So Bunny goes to England for the first time. He's the first international movie star to go across the ocean, and he get, he steps off the boat, and he's mobbed, and he can't believe it. <laughs> and he's not only making movies during that trip in England, he goes to Ireland, he goes to France, and he goes to Germany, and he's mobbed wherever he goes, and he finds out that he's known um, by other names, that the French and the Germans and even the Russians had given him names in their languages that had endearing qualities to them. So um, he was known, in, in France, he was known as Monsieur Cinema. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> um, so getting back to your question, they're developing the talent in front of the camera, they're developing the talent behind the camera, and there was kind of an unwritten um, law that among the pioneers, you don't take each other's people. You develop your own people and you respect the other companies. But when new companies started to come along uh, around 1911, 1912, 1913, they started to raid the pioneer companies. And not only were they making their versions of Vitagraph movies and the other companies, they were taking their, paying more money to their writers, writers directors, cameramen, uh, actors and actresses, um, to work for them. Um, this then led to the growth of some of those. The companies that mimicked Vitagraph the best were, that came in their wake were the ones that survived. Um, places like Paramount and Fox. Um, Warner Brothers actually ended up buying Vitagraph in 1925. And 
Warner Brothers wouldn't be Vita, wouldn't be Warner Brothers without having purchased Vitagraph initially because they wanted their worldwide distribution system. Even when Vitagraph started to decline um, in the 20s, their movies were still being seen everywhere because they had created such a demand for their kind of movie and had the uh, delivery service to get their movies shown literally in every country in the world that was showing movies. Uh, it's extraordinary. The, the kind of dastardly thing that the second generation of moguls did was there hadn't been any books, history books about the movies written yet. Uh, it was all so new when Vitagraph was king of the hill. And the first books were starting to get written in the mid-20s. Uh, 1930 was the first really important book. Um, and the moguls that came along after Vitagraph took credit for everything that they did. Those authors printed their statements as fact, and those have been reprinted in book after book after book, whether it's a film history textbook or a biography of the moguls or a history of a particular studio. Um, these myths have been propagated um, for a century now. And Was Vitagraph the first uh, um, motion picture uh, studio to move to Southern California in the Los Angeles area? No, they were one of the first. The first was actually Colonel Selig, who I wrote my first book about, and he was based in Chicago. Um, and Colonel Selig was the first person to make westerns in the West with real cowboys and real Indians and real uh, Western uh, geography. And he was making his first westerns in Colorado and realized, I can't make year-round westerns in Colorado he had worked operating a mixed-race minstrel show in California back in the 1890s and said, I better settle in Los Angeles where I can make these movies year-round. I have all kinds of geography to make all kinds of movies. Felix had so much success that everyone started going to Los Angeles. He was number two to Vitagraph. Um, and Vitagraph ended up um, basically designating a one of their best directors as their maker of westerns in Los Angeles. Uh, this guy was Roland Sturgeon, who was from Michigan originally, and he had sent in movie ideas and scripts to Vitagraph's Brooklyn office, and they loved this guy, what he was coming up with story-wise, and they ended up inviting him to come to New York and to be the head of their story department. He then graduates to becoming the director and head of the Hollywood unit, and he made superb westerns. When he left in 1911 for Hollywood, Vitagraph started hiring women to be the head of the story department. And also the readers of, you can't imagine, they had hundreds of books and scripts and story ideas being submitted every week. And they trusted these women to... Uh, read everything to make reports to select what might be the best. And the woman who was the head of the department would then pass on the very best story ideas or scripts to the founders, to Smith and Blackton, uh, for final approval. And this went on for years during Vitagraph's heyday. Um, I, they, the owners trusted the women in the story department 
to especially have an idea of what female audiences might be interested in. Um, and the women had an idea of what their male um, owners of Vitagraph uh, had uh, preferred in terms of entertainment that might prefer a little more to men than women. So it's that whole aesthetic you get back to where you're trying to appeal to everybody um, and not shut out any one segment of the audience. And it extends, you know, earlier uh, at the beginning of your program, you uh, mentioned that Vitagraph predates the golden age of Hollywood. And, you know, we all think of the 30s and 40s and 50s as the golden age. Right. But I would argue that Vitagraph is doing something that the filmmakers in the golden age weren't doing. And that was making movies about people on the margins of society or ignored by society. So Vitagraph uh, made a movie in 1911 uh, called The Voiceless Message about a deaf-mute girl who's adopted by parents that have to learn to sign to be able to communicate with her. It's a beautiful story. No one else is making those kinds of movies. In 1914, they made a film called An Easter Lily about uh, the friendship between a little white boy and a little black girl. And the black girl's mom works for the white boy's family and they're not paid very much. So she doesn't, she only, only has one dress to wear. Uh, she doesn't have an Easter dress. So the little boy takes a dress that had been purchased for a cousin of his and gives it to his little friend so she can wear it when she goes to church on Easter Sunday. And he brings her to his church, and the church is segregated back then. And it causes quite an uproar, but the point was made. You know, on the most sacred day of the Christian calendar, or not, how dare you enforce a kind of segregation? And how dare you underpay people so that they can't afford more than one dress for their child? Um, and it was a very entertaining, there were some very sweet moments in that film. They made a film about um, a Chinese man adopting a Caucasian child and the resistance that he was getting in the community about that. And it's a beautiful story and another great lesson being told. And they made a film in 1914 um, that's just unlike any other movie for decades that was about um, sexual desire between people of the same sex. Um, there was lesbian desire being portrayed in a realistic manner in a, this film called A Florida Enchantment. Um, there is just nothing like that. And this is the biggest company on the planet. Andrew, I had a feeling that I was going to get really caught up in, in our conversation. I have another break coming up. Could you stick around so we can talk a little bit more? Oh. Absolutely, Tom. My pleasure. My uh, guest is Andrew Arish. He is a cinema scholar and the author of a book coming out this summer called Vitagraph, America's First Great Motion Picture Studio. We're going to let our broadcast partners at 92.1 FM squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. 
Don't click that mouse. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bode. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The Unknown Comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the final segment of today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. We extend our conversation with uh, cinema scholar Andrew Arish, who is the author of a book coming out this summer, and we'll talk uh, a little bit more about the release date uh, this segment with uh, Andrew. The book is Vitagraph, about America's film uh, first great motion picture studio. Andrew, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. I appreciate you spending this much time with me. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's it's terrific being able to talk about this with you. Um, now, first, I, I want to make sure people know that the book is not out yet. It uh, comes out right. June 9th is Correct. the publish, uh, publication date I have. And yeah. is, it, is it available for... Uh, advance uh, orders it is and uh your listeners can go to the university press of kentucky website um to do a pre-order uh i believe that you can also do pre-orders uh through other merchants uh whether you know particularly you know support your local independent bookstores um I believe you can do it through www.kentuckypress.com um, to do a pre-order. And, um, you know, I, I would say after you read the book, you're not going to trust anything you ever read in any of the other film histories you might have read. Um, <laughs> well, or, it is... or taking classes or whatever. Uh, no one has ever bothered to get into this stuff. And, uh, um, and it just changes history. It, it really does. And it sounds to me like um, Vitagraph literally became the model for the evolution yeah. of the Hollywood studio. Absolutely. Every successful studio that has come in Vitagraph's wake has been modeled, um, you know, deliberately with intent originally and today, unknowingly, based on the Vitagraph model with new studios that crop up. Um, it's their legacy. Uh, you, you can't overstate the legacy. Uh, you know, one of the funny things, speaking of legacy, one of the movies, they made the first um, version of Black Beauty, a great mm, novel, yeah. you know, traditionally children's novel, in 1921. It's the first movie that little six-year-old Ingmar Bergman ever saw at his local theater in Sweden, and it stuck with him the rest of his life. Oh, it that's inspired funny. him to want to make movies, 
and he gave two different interviews in the late 60s, uh, looking back on how he got into movies, and he remembered Black Beauty vividly, and it stayed with him always. Um, there were interesting legacies. One of the other ones um, that's worth mentioning is that Vitagraph pioneered dramatic lighting in the movies, and they started to make movies that we would label film noir as early as 1906. So the whole explanation of how film noir came about, or that it was derived from German expressionism, or that it was <laughs> uh, made in response to American angst at the end of World War II, is really nonsense if you start to look at some really great movies, especially from 1911, 1912, 1913, that are stunningly photographed, appropriately dark to the subject matter, um, and it's another kind of legacy of Vitagraph that um, we're otherwise not aware of. Well, this, this is phenomenal. I feel like we're just scratching the surface because one of the things that we didn't get into as much as I would have liked, Andrew, is talking about the, um, the, the buildup of the support staff. Um, you know, mm -hmm. we talked about actors and actresses in front of the camera. You talked about writers a little bit, um, photographers uh, to some degree. But really, the, the whole idea of all the people that it takes to make a great movie, they yeah. really championed and pioneered. And I'm curious if there were um, any carryovers post-Vitagraph, either from actors or or writers or directors uh cinematographers that that we might have come to know maybe from later associations that vitagraph discovered oh there are a lot um late in my research i discovered that edward everett horton made his first movies with vitagraph really um, now see that's a yeah. name i know right off uh, you might remember Adolf Maju. He started with I do. Um, there, there were people that kind of started in the latter part of Vitagraph's history um, that went on to have uh, pretty amazing careers. Uh, there are three Academy Award-winning cinematographers who uh, worked in the 30s, 40s, 50s um, who made photograph some of the great movies of all time who all started at Vitagraph. Um, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy both worked at Vitagraph. Oliver Hardy for years um, before he was paired with Stan Laurel. Um, and he is so good. Um, these are undiscovered comedy gems um, that, it, you know, if you love um, comedy, um, you're going to have a good time looking at those. There, there are so, so many of these are getting restored and getting put online. Uh, a couple of the websites you might want to look at are iFilm, E-Y-E, Film. That's out of Amsterdam. Um, they've preserved an awful lot of beautiful prints of photograph movies. Another is the National Film Preservation Foundation. Um, and on YouTube, there are more and more films uh, being placed. 
um, and try to look at good prints. Because yeah, see, you've got, you've, got, you've got me all fired up, Andrew. I am getting ready to do <laughs> do a YouTube safari as soon as we get done with this show. Um, I, I kept you longer than I had uh, originally intended or or that you originally agreed to and i appreciate you sticking around a little longer i, I thank you so much oh, for oh, this it's such a such an interesting topic to uh, a, a showbiz geek like me um <laughs> but uh, uh andrew i do want to ask before we uh before we sign off um do you have a website where people can track your work past present and future you know, I don't. Um, I, I'm a old-timer, baby boomer. Yeah, me too. And I am so busy um, in research projects and other facets of life that I would have to clone myself to have the time to get into doing, um, you know, social network uh, uh, presence. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with me, they can contact the uh, publisher, University Press of Kentucky. They'll forward um, any questions, emails, comments, um, and, and that would be fine. Uh, but read the book and, and start to seek out move, these movies for yourself and make up your own mind about these things. Um, there's just a wealth of, if you love the movies, I don't think you're going to be disappointed. There are some really great things out there. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to my 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 research following our conversation and to the book coming out in June. The book is called Vitagraph America's First Great Motion Picture Studio by Andrew A. Irish. Andrew, keep up the good work and thanks so much for spending this hour with me today. I appreciate it. Tom, thank you so much. It was my pleasure, believe me. All right, take care. You too. Bye-bye. And that uh, kind of wraps it up. From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all of my guests, including... Uh, the uh, guest we had this last hour, Andrew Arish, author of Vitagraph, America's first great motion picture studio. That's uh, coming out in uh, June, June 9th, I believe. And uh, also want to say thanks to uh, the rest of my guests that were uh, with us today during the second hour of our three-hour tour. Um just got to reach over and grab my notes here to remember who we talked to. Oh, of course, America's College Counselor, Sarah Harberson. I want to say thanks to Sarah. And ZenReach Vice President of Marketing, Megan Winterstein. What, a, what an interesting mix of uh, guests and information today on the show. Uh, kicking off the weekend with uh, a look at arts and entertainment like we do every Friday at 11. With that, I can uh, only tell you I hope you have uh, a great weekend and you'll join me back here Monday morning at 9 for another edition of the show. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show. 
and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.